So good to see you. Yeah, thanks. Hey, there we go. There we go. I was getting distracted by the trees. I was like, oh, it's spring. Look at the trees. You guys wouldn't even know the number of times that I'm preaching up here, fully distracted by something that's happening out there. Just you know, two or three minutes later, like, where, what are we, what's going on? Oh, here we are. No. I love the windows, but there's a lot going on out there sometimes. Uh, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Living Waters. I'm Ryan. My wife, Kate, and I have the honor and privilege of co-leading this house together with an incredible team. Um, I want to draw your attention. Some of us are new to Living Waters. We've been here. Uh, maybe this is your first time, second time, third time, somewhere in that, um, that you would text loop. I think we have a slide for it. If you want to just be in the, uh, in the inner loop, you know, uh, some churches deny they have an inner loop, but this is ours. This is, they're like, no, what inner circle? We don't have an inner circle. No, we, we really don't. Now I can't say we don't because I just joked that we, okay, we really, we really don't. This is as close as it gets. If you want to be in the loop of knowing what's going on around here, text 541-982-4576. And so that'll be just text throughout the week of events, maybe some things that are specific to you. Um, reminders about Sunday gatherings, prayer opportunities, things of that nature. And so we would love to start to get to know you if you're new to Living Waters and to our community. That's a great way to get plugged in and just find out what kind of things are going on. As always, I want to invite you to remember that we are supported by your generosity, that um, God is moving in this place and it is not sustained by some huge form of income that we have. Uh, it is all of us just pitching in together saying we want to invest our physical resources in what's got, what God's doing in Living Waters. And so we want to invite you to give. You can give online. Uh, just hold your phone up to that little QR code right there and it'll take you right to it. You can text any amount to 84321. Um, and the black boxes are in the back. Um, if you give on Sunday mornings, and that's uh, physically giving. You, uh, that way you can do that. We just love and appreciate you so much for what you're doing and how you're sustaining the work that God is doing here. It, is, it means so much to us, and, and the partnership is um, just an opportunity, I believe, for God to bless us through sacrificial giving, but also to, by just declaring with our physical gifts that we believe in what he's doing here. So uh, we honor you and appreciate you for giving. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't expect you to answer it because that would be weird. I want you to answer it for yourself. How, how are you doing this morning? Don't tell me. Don't shout it out. Just take a moment. I want to be totally congruent with you. I promised you that through my process and my journey with losing Jeff and, um, and the process of grief that, that I'm never going to stand up here and represent like God is so good all the time. God is good and, and, and just present something to you that's not entirely true with my own process and my own journey. And so one of the commitments I made to y'all in the, in the beginning point of, of this, of, of just choosing to say yes to Jesus and standing back up here into maybe a, a calling on my life or whatever you want to call it, um, was not about being done or, hey, I'm, I'm so much better now. It's just the reality of how God takes all of us and uses us and um, pours himself out upon us. And so... As I ask you how you're doing, if you ask me how I'm doing, I would say I'm doing 
I'm doing okay. But this week was a rough one. I Just like rehabbing a sports injury, grief um, is not something that you just get over. And, um, and so this week I stretched my faith, being that faith definition, being believing for the things not yet seen and that, that definition of faith. I stretched it into a place where I thought it was ready to go and it absolutely wasn't. And I immediately snapped back to being in that place of feeling the most abandoned and alone in my relationship with God. And I was there again and I was angry again and I was hurt again and I was despondent again. And I sat in that not rushing or scrambling or freaking out to try to get out of it. I just sat in it and I went, oh, there's a lot of things that the wind is in my sails for a lot of things and I believe for. And then there are things when we go through life, it's okay that you recognize that there are places that you have faith and energy for. And then you also have to recognize that when you stretch into a place where maybe you've been constantly disappointed or constantly let down or whatever, and somebody says, oh, well, let's just have faith for that. And it feels, it feels like you just want to punch them. (laughs) But you're not mad at them. You're mad at God. Because he let you down and he disappointed you and he didn't keep his promises. And, or so it appears. And those are okay things to be processing with the Lord. And so I just want to be real with you. Like, um, we had a, we had a meeting with the city this week about the building and about expanding into the building. And recently I've been feeling very invigorated and excited again to see the fullness of this 30 something thousand square foot building being used. And right now we occupy about, um, well, this, this side of it's about 12,000 square feet and a few more back there for the youth. And, but there's a, there's a huge section of this building that's gone unused and we've been sitting um, on it for a long time. And, and of course, there's COVID reasons and there's fire relief reasons and things like that. But I've been feeling super invigorated to step back into that. And so then we had a meeting with the city and then we started looking at the plans and then we started looking at the insurmountable task that was ahead of us. And we started looking at seismic retrofitting a 35,000 square foot building in downtown Medford. And we started looking at all the HVAC that needs to get done. And we started looking at all the insulation that has to be put in. And we started looking at the roofs that need to be replaced. And we started looking at all the asphalt that's cracked and has to be fixed in the sidewalks that are coming apart because the trees are running through them. And we have to fix all of those things and the ongoing list, I was just looking at it and it was like one blow after another and people were around me saying, but Jesus is gonna do it. He's not gonna let us down. And I instantly snapped to that place of being like, yeah, he might. And I don't feel like I have faith for this. I don't feel like I have faith for this building or this meeting right now. And you know what, you guys, that is absolutely okay. It's okay. Um, so here I am this morning, no longer preaching Jesus. We're going to, no, I'm just, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so I, oh, come on, sometimes. Sometimes when it gets too heavy in the room, it's just like a knee-jerk reaction. I'm sorry, I apologize. I need to let those moments linger because God is doing something deeper and I interrupt him with my humor. 
I am preaching Jesus and I'm doing it happily. <laughs> the meeting with the city, I thought they would come in and say, you guys have been in this building for five years. We gave you seven years to get your seismic done and it hasn't happened yet. You need to get all of that done first and you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this before you can even ask to get a temporary use permit to migrate your the, the, us into that larger room that's next door. And I expected there to be a large bill and lots of things and, and, uh, and they came in and they met with us and they were like, you know what? We just want to figure out a way to tell you guys yes on everything that you're asking for. And we, we want to not put anything heavy on you that's going to keep you from being able to do the things that you need to do. And they said, as long as there's a plan in place and you guys keep moving forward on it in the years ahead and you just haven't stalled out, we are totally fine with where you guys are and with what you guys are doing. So send us in a revised plan. Yeah. Um, and then I get mad at Jesus for being good. <laughs> Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? He's like, well, yeah, yeah, come on. Why are you... Why are you so good now? So how are you doing? That's all I'm doing. Um, so we are perfect. We are going to be launching into Galatians, a study on the book of Galatians. And, uh, and I want to tell you something kind of funny. Um, Andy was like, um, he, he said, because I, I go and take time I'll start taking time this soon this year for what we are going to be teaching on next year and just hearing the Lord and getting away and putting those things down. And, uh, and, I, and I was so excited. I got the whole year lined out. We're going to do Galatians. We're going to go through Galatians, and then we're going to do um, teachings on, on a bunch of the par, uh, parables of Jesus, and it's going to be rad, and our whole year is, is fun. And so Andy was like, oh, Galatians, like we did in 2020? And I was like, what are you talking about, man? Are you serious? Like, we did Galatians recently? He's like, yeah, man, we did Galatians in 2020. And then I looked back at it, and it was, it was literally during, like, the height of all of the stuff, the bull stuff with, um, that we had to confront and navigate our way through with COVID. And so I guess what this is is, hey, we're back, and let's do, go through Galatians without having to do all of the different things that we were, that we were doing and navigating. So we're going to go through the book of Galatians again, um, and you're going to love it. So <laughs> I know, and most of you are like, I never would have remembered that we went through the book of Galatians. Thank you for telling me. That's okay, too. So a couple weeks ago, I talked about not reading ourselves into the text of the Bible and um, created a, a little bit of a small stir with that. Of, uh, 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 when I said that the Bible isn't written about you and the Bible isn't written to you. And, and so I want to take a little bit of time as we launch into Galatians to talk about our Bible study methodology here that we go by. And, um, and to understand and unpack a little bit what I meant by that. Because if the Bible isn't written to me, and the Bible's not written about me, and if I'm telling you not to like stop reading yourself into the Bible, if I'm telling you that, then how should we read the Bible well? And so um, 
quick little pitch, May 30th, I am going to be doing an inductive Bible study class. I think it's just going to be three weeks covering the basics of inductive Bible study. Uh, I got volunteered for that, and then someone told me that I was doing it, so I am doing it uh, beginning May 30th. There will be other Living Waters University courses, but I love teaching this class um, so let me say this, the Bible is a gift. I want to start out by, by, by making some things very clear. The Bible is a gift to us, and we have to treat it as such. It doesn't exist for us to know about God, but for us to know God. And when we study the Bible, we are not pursuing information or even correct doctrine, although that is a byproduct of it. We should be pursuing revelation and intimacy with God with the author, not just learning about the author. So the interpretive process that we teach and live by here at Living Waters is called, we call it historical contextual. The challenge is to dig out the original meaning of every single text, every single word, every single verse, all of the stories, all of the letters, all of the poems, all of the prophecies, that we are pulling out the original meaning of those, meaning what was intended by the author and what was heard by those who read it or heard it spoken. We are not to be inserting meaning or ourselves or our context or our era into the scriptures. We do not want to import meaning into the text when we are reading the Bible. And we do not want to read ourselves as the central perspective. So studying context, specifically history, language, and culture, helps us answer these most important questions that I just asked. What, is it meant? what did it mean when God inspired that original author to write that down? And what, was it, what did it mean when they heard it or read it originally? So back to my statement, the Bible wasn't written to you, it wasn't written about you, and I would say it wasn't even written for you. <laughs> I would go further, though, and say it was preserved and protected and compiled and translated faithfully over generations for us to learn about and know God as he reveals himself through Jesus. And therefore, how we should live and walk out our faith, our belief and allegiance to Jesus and his way. So was the Bible written for us, to us, or about us? Arguably, no. Was it preserved, protected, and translated and brought to us by the power of God in a, mirac in a miraculous way for us? today to know Jesus absolutely so but this is why understanding scripture is so vital and to understand it context is king the number of times that my bible college professor Larry Powers would say context 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 and we'd be in class we'd be like context 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 is king when we are studying the Bible, and whether that is a professor, whether that is an academic, whether that is a pastor, whether that is a leader, whether that is you and I on our couch in the evening or in the morning trying to glean out of Scripture, context is king. So we have to understand where the Scripture is coming from. There is one meaning we would like to believe and try to understand that there is one meaning. 
We may not always get there, and that is okay. That is where humility comes into the journey. But an author wrote something down. Just as you write a text to someone, and they get upset with you and go, I don't like what you said to me because you meant this and this and this. And you go, that is not at all what I meant. Why? Because you are the author of the text and you know what you meant unless you're gaslighting them and then it's just changing. (laughs) That's totally not what I meant. What I meant was you're awesome. You just couldn't read it right. But do you understand that when you send a letter, write a text, put something to an email to a coworker, you know what you mean by that. And so while we are wrestling with the learning and the resources and the tools that we have, we also understand and believe that God had an intent when he inspired that author and that author had an intent in his own personality and his own understanding of God and his own journey and his own life to write that down with a meaning. And so we want to strive Not for perfection in that, but we want to strive for that as the target of going, okay, every scripture, every story, it's in there and preserved for a reason, and we want to find out what it is. So that's why we say there is one meaning to these verses that Paul wrote or anyone wrote, but many applications. The Bible is like, the Bible is like this, the Bible is like that is an overused phrase, but I'm going to use it again. The Bible is like a map to a priceless treasure, but like any map, it only works if we have the origin correct. So to understand a map, we have to first place it within the correct context. Just like the Bible, we have to have it within the correct context for it to make sense and to lead us where we want to go. Um, This is how at the centrality of it, is it going to reveal Jesus or is it going to reveal, how does this scripture apply to me? That's not what I think you sound like. I'm sorry. Um, Every time I do that, I'm like, you shouldn't have done that. Why? Okay. If the origin point for your map, for the word, is to say, when you come to the Bible, you're reading it, is it, I wonder what scripture I'm going to read today and how it applies to me and to my day? Or is it, I cannot wait to open scripture and see how Jesus is revealed to me today? Your origin point of that map is going to lead you to Jesus or into a journey that is constantly using scripture to affirm you and to encourage you and to pat you on the back and to say, you're doing great, look at you, go, as opposed to the humility and the transformative reality of saying every scripture is revealing Jesus in some way. It's either pointing to Jesus, it's either talking to us about Jesus, or it's telling us what has happened because of Jesus. And that is our origin point. If I gave you a map and at the beginning point of the map, it said, and sorry, don't hear me say I'm, it's not okay to like get affirmation and encouragement out of reading verses. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when we read them on a little calendar that has the number and you rip it off and it's just like one verse that's sitting there completely out of context and you go, oh, the Lord is speaking me to me today. No, you're speaking to you today. You might as well go in the mirror and just say nice things to yourself. <laughs> context matters because the original meaning of that verse matters and for you to understand what it's truly saying to you today, it would be wise to say, I wonder what that verse means before I pluck it out and, and you, know, you know what I'm saying? Okay. okay, anyway, so if I gave you a map and the map said, start at the old oak tree, 
Every single one of us is going to, would start at a different point into, unless we had an agreement that's saying, start by the old oak tree that's right next to Living Waters property right along Jackson Street. Then we would all know where it begins. And so I want us to say, what is our old oak tree when we come to the map of Scripture? It is the centrality of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus and the belief that the Spirit of the living God has preserved Scripture as a revelatory story of Jesus and God's reconciliation of himself to us, or of us to himself, I should say. So, does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's just skip that part. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so you've heard people say, you've heard people say, the Bible clearly says, which is usually followed by someone giving you instructions on how you are to live. The Bible clearly says you're doing that wrong. Um, but that, that was funny. That was a joke. Um, but here's the thing. The Bible doesn't often clearly say anything. There's nuance to it. There's context to it. There's history to it. There's language to it. Kate and I love to travel to, to Mexico for vacation, and we feel culture shock just by going on an airplane, landing, going through customs, getting out, riding on a boat, getting to our destination, being in a little tiny town. It is radically different than where we were when we left that day 12, 15 hours before. There is a massive gap in our experience of where we were 15 hours ago to where we are now, and it is almost impossible for us to get a feel, a vibe, an understanding of what is happening, to get ourselves acclimated to the language and the people around us because it is such a transition. That is a 15-hour transition between a few hundred miles of people. Now imagine a 2,000, 3,000, 4,000-year gap between people and languages and histories and all of those things. We are arguing about what happened in America 250 years ago and how our nation was founded and therefore how we should act. Now we can't even agree on that. Listen, there are passages, parts of scripture where a 250, yard, 250 year gap would have been nothing. God was just taking a breath. <laughs> there are huge contextual cultural, historical, linguistic gaps in the Bible that it is important for us to study. The Bible doesn't clearly say anything, and I don't mean that to discourage you from reading it. If the Bible doesn't clearly say anything, then what should we do? We should remain with a deep... Okay, now hold on. Some of you maybe are freaking out right now. Bear with me, okay? Stick with me for a second. If, 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 if what I'm saying feels like I am undermining the potency and the power and the importance of Scripture, I am not. I just want us to understand that it's really easy for me as a pastor to say to you, the Bible clearly says that you need to do this and do this and do this and do this. But when you, when you start studying those Scriptures, you might find that, oh, there's others and scholars and people who look at those differently. And maybe we don't have a corner on the market of every single verse. And maybe I should be a little bit more humble in telling people how they should live based on my understanding and interpretation of a Scripture. And maybe I should get better at pointing people back to Jesus and inviting the power of God's spirit to rest on them and lead them into all truth as he promised that he would. 
And so I'm not saying any of this to undermine the scripture. I love the Bible. I study it more than you. <laughs> I, I have built my life on scripture. There are mornings I wake up and freak out because I have built my entire life on the Bible. That's okay. But it's the reality. Has anybody ever had that feeling where you're like, oh my gosh, what if this isn't true? <laughs> I have those moments, I'm not gonna lie. But if, if I'm telling you the Bible doesn't clearly say anything or if I'm telling you that there is humility that should be brought to our study of Scripture, I am not telling you that you should not study it individually, but I am saying that this alone should lead us not away from Scripture, but with a deep commitment in reading it and journaling it and studying it and enjoying it and understanding it within its original intent and context to the best of our ability and that it is so powerful and life-giving when we do and when we miss it and we don't read our word and we just go off of these out-of-context verses that we've learned because we grew up in America or we see them here, we see them there, or we had Bible studies or Sunday morning classrooms and that's great to get the word into us. But if we are not reading it and contending for it and, and, and diving into understanding it, then we can miss the reality of the larger message that is in it that is so beautiful, the message of Jesus, but also the message of how the Holy Spirit wants to use Scripture to teach us how to live in a way that be, we become more and more like Jesus. It can become dangerous when we just stretch the text further than it's intended to go, proof texting these beliefs that we have or these values that we are protecting and saying this is what, this is what the Bible says and I just have to live this way. If we are reading ourselves, our time, our culture into it, we can justify skipping major interpretive steps when we don't walk through the valley of history, cultural, linguistic context. And I'm saying this to you believing that you have every resource and tool at your fingertips that 100 years ago any theologian would have died to have. And so I'm not giving you some sort of task that's impossible of like, how am I going to do this linguistically? How am I going to figure out what is going on historically? I don't understand what's happening culturally. I don't even know what's going on in my own culture for crying out loud. How am I going to know what was going on and how are those sources trustworthy and we have so many tools at our fingertips that I would just encourage you again this is maybe a plug for my class come out we'll talk about a lot of those little things that just make your daily bible reading full vibrant and healthy so that you can get everything out of it in the essence of why it exists which is to reveal Jesus to you and to us um, but where was I? Oh, if we, if we just grab scripture and we stretch it from there all the way to us here and we ignore the, the valley, the, the canyon that is between us of history and culture and context, we can do great damage to the word and what was actually intended by the original author. And we, we can lose our spiritual 
our intellectual integrity along the way, and we do not want to do that. When we make application the same as interpretation, we are losing connection with the word. Okay. So what this does is it weakens the power and the authority of Scripture when we pull them too quickly into our time and we place context without the humility of acknowledging that massive distance, that cultural distance, language distance between us and when they were written and who they were written to and applying them. Another time I will talk to you about biblicism. Biblical idolatry that I think is rampant in our culture right now. Um, But I don't have time for that this morning, and we'll save that for another day. (laughs) So what the author meant, both divine and human, and what a passage means to you are two totally different things. One is objective truth that we can build on, and one is subjective truth to your interpretation process, and it should be held with humility. Both of those things should be held with humility. Um, I don't really care, honestly, what a verse means to you. I I don't think you should care what a verse means to me. I think that if you find yourself in a Bible study where everybody's sitting around in a circle going, what does this verse mean to you? You should be like, um, can we, can we not sit here and, and reinterpret the verse 16 times in a circle? Can we actually just find out what, to the best of our ability, what that verse means and then talk about how we would apply it? to our life. I don't care what the verse means to you. I care what the verse meant to Paul when he wrote it. And I don't care what it meant to me. I care about what Paul meant when he wrote it, right? Does that make sense? Sorry. And also, Bible studies are awesome and hang out in them. And even if people are saying, this is what this, bio, this verse means to me, you go, oh, that's amazing. And then pull out your Bible and say, well, I did some study. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I spent the night awake and I've been studying this, the Greek in this passage. All right, sorry. That's just, that's my John Eaton impression. Um, so, which brings us, oh, So we don't care what the verse means to you. You don't care what it means to me. You want to know, I want to know what it meant to the author when they wrote it to the best of our ability. We want to know what the original audience heard when they read it, learned when they read it, were challenged by when they read it, and then we want to ask, is there a principle from that or a characteristic of God that we can learn and that we can bring into our reality today? Interpretation, then application. Not application without interpretation. So this brings us to Galatians. Got it. Ready? Let's do it. This letter wasn't written to you. Yep. It was written to believers in the early first century in the region of Galatia, which was several churches in now what is roughly modern-day Turkey. It was written by Paul. Paul was the missionary who brought them the gospel to the Gentiles, which Gentiles were non-Jewish people. Paul was originally known as Saul. Many of you know his story from the book of Acts. He grew up in Judaism. He was 
the greatest of the great of the young students. He was so zealous for his faith. He was so anti-Messiahs. He was anti-Jesus that he traveled around arresting people, throwing people in jail, overseeing people being stoned because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus. Paul was a zealot in opposition to the early church and to Jesus. And Jesus met him radically transformed his life, changed his name to Paul, and then sent him back to the people through the people that he was previously persecuting. And he took it a step further to say, I don't want to just go back to the Jews. I am a Roman citizen and I want to go to the Romans and to the Gentiles. I believe that I have a revelation from Jesus of this gospel that is so transformative that it is for the Gentiles as well. And so Paul began to travel and plant churches as a missionary and see amazing things happening. And so Paul was writing this to those early believers back after he had planted those churches. He's writing back to them. It definitely wasn't written about you. It was written about representatives of the Jerusalem church, the Christians in Jerusalem. They wanted to keep their favorable standing with Rome, which means they didn't want to die for Jesus, basically, if we're going to distill it down. The, re, the way that they were going to do this, so Rome approved Judaism. This was an approved religion. And so you could practice it without falling under the wrath of the Roman government. Caesar is Lord. We talked about that in the King Jesus series where you had to declare that Jesus was Lord. And yet you could get permission to practice your religion of your culture after the Romans had conquered and occupied your nation. And so they had an approved religion. And so what people were doing was they were saying, as long as we stay under that approval, we will not come under the wrath of the Roman Empire and we will not be killed like Jesus was. Does that make sense? And so what they began to do is they said, what we need to do is we need to teach people that they have to join us. They have to join Judaism. And then this is just a sect of Judaism that they are a part of, that we are a part of. And so it would come under that government allowance and not put them in a place of being seen in a way that would put their life, livelihood, family, reputation at risk. Does that, does that make sense? And so, so these folks were coming and undermining Paul and saying, Paul's not a real, he's not a real apostle. And you know what else? Paul forgot to tell you the reality of the gospel, which is this. You have to come and follow all of the old covenant. You have to come under those laws that we are practicing. You need to be circumcised. You have to become a seed, or a, 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 um, you have to become an heir of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, if you are gonna receive the seed of Abraham, which was Jesus. And so they were saying that because that brought them into that covering and that safety. And yet here was this rogue apostle, so to speak, who was out there telling everyone that Jesus had made a way for them and that the law was insufficient, but Jesus's grace was sufficient. And so they said, Paul wasn't teaching you a real gospel. He forgot these parts. And we would like to tell you these parts that he forgot. Does that make sense? Okay. And so they were traveling and, and, and teaching this and undermining his reputation. And so... How can we learn and apply truth from a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago? By studying it to the best of our ability, by trusting God to meet us in that. 
believing that he breathed on Paul, that he breathed on scripture, and that he breathed on the protection process that brought us these words. That the Holy Spirit is as alive today when we read Galatians and moving through it and moving through us as he was when it was written originally. So as I mentioned, these religious leaders from Jerusalem were coming and undermining Paul. As I said, they charged him that with being a secondhand apostle. And they argued that he was a compromiser, that he had made the gospel more attractive, that he was not teaching the full gospel, and that he was also making the gospel available to the Gentiles, which they had a major problem with. That's racism. And so Paul was confronting racism. He was confronting bad doctrine. He was confronting religious coercion. And the pain that comes when we are told by people that we trust in religious places that we have to perform and be a certain way to be acceptable to God. And so Paul stood in the gap for that. And Galatians 3.3 3 being the verse that we will draw on. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the spirit? Why are you not trying to become perfect by your own human effort? So Paul's message to the Galatians, to the churches in Galatia, and this was a letter that was gonna be taken around and read, is that God loves you, God forgives you, God empowers you to live in freedom through Jesus, and he has gifted you lavishly the grace that you cannot earn through human effort and through allegiance to Jesus alone. And the lie that he is pushing up against that he just said in Galatians 3, 3 of how foolish can we be that after starting our lives in Jesus and the spirit that we would then pick up performance is that he says to them, how is it that we are gonna finish what God has started? Do not be tripped up. Do not be tempted by religious people who would come to you and say that what Jesus has given you for free now has to be purchased by your blood, your sweat, your tears, and your efforts. Paul is coming to rescue them or stepping in to rescue them from this false gospel. He's telling them that they've said yes to Jesus, that they are spiritually reborn through a relationship with him and that they cannot earn it through work, that it is done in Christ. It's a gift that you can only receive. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Paul, fired up. And we have already said, so now I say it again. 
If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. I am now trying to I am now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God. Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. So Paul's emphatic message through this letter is that when Jesus set them free, he set them free entirely. Not only from the past, but he also set them free from works. He set them free from religious people who would come and say, you are failing, you are not measuring up to God. You are not adequate for him. They were being saved and delivered from that message that wanted to weigh them down, that yoke of slavery. And he challenged them to not let anybody, no matter who they were, rob them of that beautiful simplicity of the gospel. A lot of times you might think at this point, I'm gonna jump off of Galatians and start talking to you about being very careful with all the false gospels that are out there in the church today and people don't have the right gospel and they, don't, they need to teach this way and they need to teach the gospel this way and they need to teach the gospel this way. But listen, Paul wasn't writing about false gospels traveling around in 2023. That's not what he meant. In fact, the false gospel that he was talking about specifically was Judaism and the old covenant and the law. And it cannot be about anything that's happening today, and I will use the word correctly, because literally there are no priests, sacrificial systems, laws, or a culture that is underneath those that we have experience in right now in our culture in Medford, Oregon. It is written to them against those who are coming from Jerusalem. That is the false gospel that he was talking about. And if somebody wants to use this passage to launch off and write books and teach sermon series about the false gospels that are being preached in America today, that's not what it's talking about. 
If anything, it's actually talking specifically to the person that would be doing that because it is against those who would say, you have to believe a certain way and the way that you're believing is inadequate. It doesn't measure up. You need to jump through these hoops. You need to get it right if you really wanna be saved by Jesus. What? That's exactly what Paul wrote the letter against. Anyway. Paul was having none of it. <laughs> to summarize, Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul wasn't afraid of what of those in his past, what they would have thought, those he came up with, those who taught him, those that he ran alongside, those that he persecuted the church with, those that he took all of the, of the journeys with, of learning, and, and, and as he said, excelling in that environment that he was in. He's not worried about them, not worried about his teachers. He's not worried about anyone in the Jerusalem church. He makes it clear even to separate himself from that Jerusalem church, even from Peter, I'm not worried about what all of them are saying. I am only worried about one thing, the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ alone, that you do not have to come under religious obligation. You don't have to come under an old covenant that has been done away with. You don't have to come under the law to receive the grace and mercy that Jesus has made available to you freely. And, and Paul, I am not afraid to say that in front of anyone, anytime, anywhere. I am not trying to please people. I am only trying to please Jesus. We understand that fear, if he lived in that kind of fear, it would limit his ability to preach the gospel of Jesus in its purest form. And he stood up to those who were bringing a different gospel to the churches in Galatia. He was astonished by them how quickly they were turning away. And here's what we can understand from this. Religion has always used fear to try to manipulate people away from Jesus. And it started at the inception. And so a correct understanding and application of that scripture is to say, this has been a tactic of the enemy from the get-go to come to people who are coming alive in Jesus and stand before them and say, you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. You are not looking the part enough. You haven't memorized the scriptures enough. You haven't come to church enough. You haven't started giving your tithe and offering enough. You're not in the right discipleship classes. You're still doing those things that you confessed that you would stop. You are going to have to put in so much human effort to get yourself to be acceptable to Jesus. And the fear replaces intimacy with Jesus that fast. And before we know it, we are worshiping a man-made idol of religion and we are following a man-made idol of religion that looks like Jesus but requires us to make sacrifices that Jesus already made. And so from the very beginning, religion has been using fear to coerce you and me to behaviors and performances that Jesus isn't asking us for. And if there is one thing that I can bring into our moment this morning, it would be to say, I am so sorry to anyone in this room who didn't have a Paul to stand up for you 
in that moment when you were young in the faith and someone told you that it was more about your behavior and your appearance than the condition of your heart before Jesus. I'm sorry for the marks that you bear of trying to self-improve and learn the right things and behave the right way. The heavy bondage of religion that has come upon you when you said yes to Jesus, but instead received bondage that tied you up in inadequacy and in fear and in performance, which then led to shame, which then led to hiding, which then led to acting out your faith instead of getting to actually live it out. And when, when there is that great of a gap between what we are believing for and what we are actually experiencing, this is a measurement that can only mark pain. My heart, Paul's heart, is to stand before every single one of us, beside every single one of us, who are coming to Jesus and saying, I just want you, Jesus. I want your transformative presence in my life. I want your spirit upon me. I want to look like you and act like you and behave like you and be known by you. And that we would protect the innocence of that moment and we wouldn't see religion bait and switch people any longer. Even if it looks good, even if it sounds good even if it dresses itself up really nice on Sunday and holds a microphone and seems like it has authority, I would say the same thing that Paul said. If I teach you ever anything, anything that takes what Jesus has done and offers you freely, and I put a contingency on it, a caveat on it, a smug little judgment on it, uh, yeah, but you got to act this way and do this stuff and blah, 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 blah. Leave this church. Leave it now. If you find yourself in a church that is so fixated on people's sins that they forget to talk about Jesus, leave it. Paul said it with confidence, and I would love to say it with the same. Jesus is everything. He completed everything. He is lacking nothing. He is inviting you by his gift, free gift of grace to come into him and receive his life, not by anything that you could ever do. And here's the good news. It's not only that you couldn't accomplish it to get to that point, it's that the, the, the work that he wants to do in you is also just you walking with him from that point forward. Don't run ahead. Don't be like, Jesus, look at all the things I accomplished today. Look at, I did my memory verses and I put on my tie and I did the thing and I got rid of this and I did this thing. Blah. Just walk with Jesus. Listen, listen. We love lists. We love to give lists to people of things that are acceptable and not acceptable for them to come to Jesus. 
we love to look at people's sins and a lot of it is external sin and we go, oh, that, that person needs to, they need to repent of that sin. They need to stop doing that. They need to quit that before they come to Jesus. Clearly, they need to do that. What about all the unseen sins? Do they have to, to confess all of those and change all of those before they come to Jesus too? Should we start giving people just months-long classes of all of the things that they need to stop doing before they come to Jesus? No. What if I come to Jesus with a, with a terribly external sin in my life? a terribly external behavior in my life. And what if Jesus in his kindness embraces me and accepts me in and says, you have a place at my table too. And I would say, but what about this giant thing that's hanging off of my life? And he would say, oh, you know what? Maybe we'll get to that down the road. What if Jesus is asking someone to deal with something very, very small, like an area of humility in their life, way before he's asking them to deal with a behavior issue that you so easily see and call out? What if Jesus in his kindness would say, I will walk with you because walking with me is bending a knee and surrendering a heart and saying, Jesus, you are Lord of my Mind, heart, behavior, life, family, marriage, business. You are Lord of all of this. And as you, by your spirit, show me what I need to deal with, I will deal with it. But I am not going out of order because religion gave me a list and ranked them for me. Because that is going back to behavior and earning what Jesus has given to us for free. He gave us the gift of grace and he's also given us the means to transformation by the outpouring of his spirit upon us. And so let us not be so quick to worry about Jesus taking care of people in his timing. What if taking care of that thing too soon would kill something deep inside of them that he cares for? And what if he nurtured that thing until it came to a place of strength where he could then deal with that thing? Amen? All right, love you guys.